Yeah, thanks, y'all. Um, that song came out in 2003, and during the pre-worship huddle up, it caused a lot of, uh, I think, existential crisis in various ones of us who realized that we were not all the same age in 2003. Uh, so anyway, welcome to Catalyst. My name is JR. I'm the teaching pastor. And uh, I want to actually ask a question this morning, just for you to kind of sit with and think about. Um, what in your history was your worst Christmas? What was your worst Christmas? I know exactly what mine is. Uh, it was a number of years ago. I was still a youth pastor in Columbia, Missouri at the time. So actually, probably not too many years after that song came out. Uh, and uh, it was Christmas Eve, so I was at, you know, at church at part of our Christmas Eve uh, worship. And when the Christmas Eve service was over, I was preparing to go home. I was going to you know, uh, head to bed pretty early that night and get up first thing this morning and drive back to Kansas City to be with my family. I pulled out my phone, and I saw I had a ton of missed calls and text messages. And I was like, well, that's weird. You know, usually people wait until, thanks, or until Christmas Day to do that. And I flipped my phone open, and the first text I saw was from my sister, and it said, Mom's been in a car accident. You need to come home. And so I, you know, immediately sprinted home. You know, I kind of told my pastor and the rest of the church, like, sorry, emergency, got to go. Uh, got, got packed up, got in the car, and then called and found out from my sister that my mom and stepdad had been driving in a car and uh, they had been T-boned by another car that had uh, jumped a median and crossed three lanes of traffic and slammed into the driver's side door where my stepdad was driving. And he was in the ICU. My mom was actually, uh, you know, broken collarbone and some other stuff, but conscious was, fi- well, you know, relatively fine. Um, fine as in, like, definitely going to be okay and not, you know, hovering between life and death. My stepdad, however, was in the ICU, and uh, things were real, real, real critical. And so uh, I got, went straight to the, uh, the emergency room and spent, spent the night there with my family, uh, my, you know, my step-siblings and my, my brother and sister. And uh, I remember the, the thing that I remember most vividly from that night was, you know, that because my stepdad was in the ICU, we could only go back there one at a time. There were only like two people in there at a time. So my mom would take one of us back there and we'd like be at his bedside. And, uh, and then at one point, uh, two of my mom's really, really close friends showed up. And so I led them back to where my mom was with my stepdad. And uh, I, of course, I couldn't stay back there with them, so I left. And I, I still can see this very vividly to this day. As, I w- as the door was swinging closed and I was like officially out of the room, I saw my mom just like collapse into her friends and start weeping. And I realized that she had been like holding herself together and trying to be strong for the kids. But once, once she felt like she was in a place where she could be cared for, she had just completely collapsed. And that's what I remember about that Christmas. I don't remember if I got a new ornament. Probably I did. Usually get one every year from my parents, right? I don't remember what kind of presents I got. Um, I don't even remember like which days I was in at the hospital. What I remember are those those feelings of fear and anxiety, um, grief. Now, that's been a lot of years ago, and everyone's fine. Everyone's fully recovered. Uh, and when we talk about that, uh, the rare times we do, we refer to it as the accident right? Uh, But as I was preparing the message for today, I kept going back to that incident because it reminds me that no matter how carefully we plan, no matter how carefully we try to control everything, uh, there's no such thing as a perfect Christmas. And usually they're not as dramatically imperfect as that one. But I think we've all experienced that desire to craft the perfect holiday setting 
and things inevitably going wrong. Uh, little things, right, like uh, travel snafus, to big things like broken relationships or a lack of money uh, or some kind of change in relationship or job status or something like that, um, that can just really make it feel like all of our efforts towards creating the perfect Christmas experience uh, go out the window. And I wanted to start there this morning because what we're going to talk about today is the idea that there actually is no such thing as a perfect Christmas, and that was even true of the first Christmas. The first Christmas was actually about the furthest thing from perfect you could imagine, and that's actually what is good about the Christmas story, is that God doesn't wait for us to be perfect. God doesn't wait for us to have our act together. God actually enters into the messiness of our lives, and we call that good news. We say it's good that God came to us and that, that Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our messy lives, in the midst of our imperfections. And so I want to begin this morning uh, by inviting you to sing with us. Uh, we're going to stand up here after the Advent reading and, and sing a song together that celebrates uh, the way we long for Jesus to return and set things right. Uh, before we do that, of course, uh, during the Advent season, we participate with churches all over the world in lighting these Advent candles. And these are a way of symbolizing that we're waiting on God, we're anticipating, we're on the lookout for how God is at work among us. And so each week we've had a family in the congregation uh, light the candle and, and read some scripture for us. And so today we have another uh, of our virtual families. Uh, this is Andrew and Stormy Franks. Uh, who, if you're in the live chat, you'll recognize them. They're in there pretty regularly. I think Andrew was having a spiritual experience during the cover song, so thank you on his behalf. Um, but uh, they're going to they're gonna read the scripture for us and light the Advent candle this morning. So would you give your attention over to Andrew and Stormy? It is the fourth Sunday of Advent, and Advent is the season that begins the church calendar for us. So we begin the year with a season that is focused on waiting, on preparing, and anticipating. And, and traditionally during Advent, we're actually looking forward to the second coming, to the return of Jesus to the earth. And the reason it gets paired up uh, with the lead up to Christmas is because uh, the church has found it really helpful to prepare for Jesus' return, to ask, what is the world going to look like when Jesus returns, and, and how does that mean we should respond, uh, by, by looking back to how God's people prepared for Jesus' arrival the first time. So it's this nice lead-up to Christmas that not only gets us ready to celebrate Christmas, but also reminds us that God is not done with the world and that uh, there is still good and uh, beauty that is uh, coming into the world, and, and that God is already at work in those things. And so this year, our Advent series has been called I'll Be Home for Christmas, uh, obviously taking a spin off of the old Christmas carol, uh, but also imagining what the world is going to be like when Jesus returns. And again, what that means for us as we respond to that. So we began by uh, asserting very powerfully that the world belongs to God and that God has not abandoned the world, that God has not uh, done with the world, but that God is still present with us. Then we looked at kind of two different ways that we should be preparing. One is that, that personal inward sort of desire to repent and return to God. And then the other is that corporate sort of social looking out at the world and acknowledging that it's really hard to do that because uh, the world is, is hurting right now. There's a lot of pain in the world. And when we look out and try to address that, it gets really exhausting. And we looked at John the baptizer, uh, sort of his weariness and, and coming to the realization that 
God's plan didn't necessarily involve uh, freeing him from prison. That in fact, sometimes when we are faithful to God's call in our lives, it leads us to a cross. So today, uh, you know, we, this is, I was telling the, the worship team before we began today, this is actually the earliest that it is possible for Advent to be because Christmas is on a Sunday. So, uh, because you always get four Sundays before Christmas. So like if Christmas is on a Monday, right, then you have like the fourth Sunday of Advent and then boom, right? Uh, so uh, this time we have the fourth Sunday of Advent and then we have an entire week to Christmas. So a lot of times when we get to this Sunday, we have even less time and there are people who are feeling even more pressed. We still only have a week till Christmas and this is usually this, the time in the season when there are several different responses. Uh, some of us are just trying to put our heads down and get to Christmas, right? We're just like, la, la, la. Some of, us, uh, some of us are getting to the place where, like if you're a teacher or something, you may have gotten to the place where your, your job is done till Christmas, and so now, is the, now it's crunch time. And you're just like, okay, we got all the stuff that we've been putting off doing, it's now time to do. Uh, some of us are just like almost on the, the, we're hovering at the edge of burnout already. We've been going since Halloween, and uh, which, shame on you, right? You should at least wait till Thanksgiving, I think. Uh, but, you know, some of us do. Some of us have been go, 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 go. And we're just really, really, really tired and worn out and broken down. Uh, some of us, again, we understand how other people, like, look forward to Christmas and prepare for it. But for some of us, it's really a source of pain. We have um, either, again, the, the, you know, our financial realities make it difficult or the, the kinds of family relationships that we have make it really hard. And so we just kind of want to get through the season. Uh, so I just want to acknowledge, as we're getting started today, that we're all coming from all kinds of different places. And that's, that's actually okay. Uh, because what I want to look at today is the Christmas story in Matthew, uh, which is a really powerful reminder to us that Christmas has never been a perfect story. Uh, Luke's Christmas story is the one that starts with uh, Zachariah and Elizabeth having John the Baptist, and then Mary being told by the angel that she's going to be the mother of the Messiah, and then, you know, like her going to Elizabeth and John leaps in her womb, like all, all that stuff. And then Matthew just gets straight to the point, right? So, so if you have a Bible, turn with us to Matthew chapter 1. Uh, and if you grab one of the Bibles out of the back, that's page 577. Uh, as you're flipping over there, you're going to notice that the, the Matthew story is so much shorter and so much more abrupt than Luke's. And in a way, I think that really helps us focus in. So all the first 17 verses of Matthew are a genealogy of Jesus that goes all the way back to Abraham. Okay, and so it's like, you know, it's Abraham begat, I, it's the begats if you were a King James kid growing up. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat, you know, and it's like begat, 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 uh, all the way through. And it ends with uh, Joseph, who is, uh, says Joseph, the father of Jesus. Now, what I think is funny about that is that very quickly, even though Matthew just said, and Joseph was the father of Jesus, is that uh, Matthew tells us Joseph is not actually the father of Jesus. Because, of course, Mary uh, has a virgin conception and virgin birth, right? So um, I just, I, I want to say that outright at the top so that you know, before we read this, Matthew knows, right? He knows. And he expects us to know. He actually wrote his gospel in such a way that we know that Joseph is not Jesus' father. And that's all on purpose 
And that's what I think is interesting. That's where I kind of want to hang out this morning. So let's read beginning in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1. Matthew says, This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. That was like, I don't know, 50 verses in Luke. Right? Matthew gets it done in two. Okay? Joseph, her fiancé, was a good man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. As uh, he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save the people from their sins. Now, all of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. This is what Andrew and Stormy read for us earlier, right? Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So when Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded, and he took Mary as his wife. But he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born, and Joseph named him Jesus. Okay. Now, there's a couple of things uh, before we get to talking about Jesus. I just want to talk briefly about the virgin birth because this is a place where a lot of people get hung up, especially in our day and age. Uh, and actually, even early, even early, early, early in uh, Roman history, there were Roman critics of Christianity who said, this is a story that the Christians made up to explain why Joseph was not Jesus's actual biological father. Um, there are some who said that Mary was uh, assaulted by a Roman soldier and that that was why they made up the story and things like that. Um, what, what I find interesting, though, is that we read this story and we think, wow, a virgin birth, like that's a once in a, like once in a universe kind of a thing, right? But... Uh, in the ancient world, it was actually, I don't want to say super common. It wasn't like virgins were giving birth to kids all the time. Um, but uh, it was actually relatively common for someone who was held up and considered to be a great person to say that they were born of a virgin. So for instance, Alexander the Great, allegedly his mother was a virgin who was impregnated by a lightning bolt from Zeus. I have questions, right? But that's the story. Uh, Plato was allegedly the child of a virgin and Apollo, okay? Uh, Romulus, the man who founded Rome, the Roman Empire, the city of Rome and the Roman Empire, was allegedly the son of a virgin and Mars, the Roman god of war, okay? Even Caesar Augustus, who was the Roman emperor when Jesus was born, was said to have been born of a virgin and, again, the god Apollo. Apparently, Apollo was... You know, well, you know, the Greek gods, they all kind of were, right? Um, so, so I just, I say that to say this. When, when the scriptures claim that Jesus was born of a virgin, that sounded different to the ancient audiences than it does to us today, right? We're like, whoa, that's the only time in history that's happened. But for them, it was, it, for them, it was something else. It was a claim that Jesus was something more than just your average human, okay? Like several other of their ancient heroes. Okay, whereas, again, for us, it seems more of a uh, claim to exceptionalism. Jesus is the only one. He's special in that way. And we don't even have time to get into, like, 
when, you know, when John 3.16 says that he's Jesus, or God's only begotten son, like that's not the virgin. That's, again, it's a whole other thing we don't have time to get into today. But I say, let's say this. There's still something really fascinating when you, when you put Jesus' birth, uh, virgin birth, into context with all of these other virgin births. There's still something interesting happening here that I think is actually Matthew's point. He's in Matthew wrote his gospel in a world, in that world, right? In the world of Alexander the Great and Plato and Romulus and, and, uh, and Caesar Augustus. So all of those people were either really spectacular humans or they were demigods like Hercules. Hercules was a demigod. I mean, you're half human, half God, which that's, that's how the DNA works, right? If, if you have a, a supernatural being as one of your parents and a human as one of your parents, then you're half and half. We call that a demigod, right? We, we, again, we have a term for that. The Greeks had a term for that. The Romans had a term for that. It was a, it was a known thing. Then you have someone like Caesar Augustus who was not considered a god until he had died, and then the Roman Senate would actually vote to elevate you to the status of a god. They did this with Julius Caesar like after they assassinated him, right? I, I don't know if that was like an apology or whatever, right? But the Romans would actually vote and say, yes, we believe that Caesar has like ascended to become a god upon his death. And so now you build temples to him and you offer sacrifices to him, things like that. None of these things, none of these possibilities that, that like, you know, like Plato, Jesus was an exceptional teacher. Or like Alexander or Hercules, who was a demigod. Or like Caesar Augustus and Julius Caesar, he became a god upon his death. None of those are the claims that the gospel writers make about Jesus. What they claim is that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and that he was not a demigod. He wasn't 50-50. He was that impossible Trinitarian math of 100-100. He was fully human and fully God, both at once, without contradiction or competition. And so here's, this is going to be hard for us, okay? But I want us to try this together. The gospel writers' claims about the virgin birth of Jesus are not biological claims, okay? I used to, I used to argue with my atheist friends in high school about this. I was like, what did Jesus' DNA look like? Like, do you not have a Y chromosome? Or did it like glow with special like God power? I, what, you know, we'd argue about like the biology of the DNA because you'd want to know, right? It's, interest, it's an interesting question. It's one that gospel writers are completely uninterested in mainly because they didn't know about DNA. What they are saying by talking about Jesus' virgin birth in the way they are, at the time and place that they are, is that in the person of Jesus, the God of Israel, the God who spoke through the prophet Isaiah, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of those begats in the, in the genealogy, this same God now, in this particular time and place, through the life of Joseph and this young woman named Mary, who was a virgin, is embarking on something entirely new and unknown previously in human history. It's a big claim. And what I want to do before we move forward is return back into worship and sit with this. We're going to stand with it. Stand with it and sing about it. This idea that in Jesus, what we find 
is God doing something new. That the Christmas story itself is about newness breaking in and breaking out in the midst of a world that is sort of stuck, trapped by these systemic evils, by empires, by oppression and injustice, and that God's answer to that is this newness breaking forth. So yeah, worship team, y'all come on up. And I want to invite you to stand with me again. And I want to invite you to, uh, this might be something you have to sing in faith. You have to say, I don't understand this. Uh, The biology bit lost me. Uh, DNA, whatever, right? Uh, This might be something where we we sort of lean into that and we pray with the young, the man who brought his kid to Jesus that one time. I believe, help my unbelief. I don't understand this. The math doesn't make sense. I flunked biology, whatever, right? Uh, So I want you to stand with me and sort of sing by faith that God is doing something new. So uh, this is why I want to come back to Joseph, because again, I just think it's amazing that Matthew begins with this genealogy. So, and again, it's uh, Luke does a genealogy after his birth stories, and he traces it to Mary, which makes sense. Matthew does, opens, opens with the genealogy, traces it to Joseph, ends with Joseph, right? And then immediately tells us, but you know, Joseph's not the dad anyway, right? So you, you just sort of are like, wait, what? What's happening here? Uh, again, I just think it's a clarion call. This is not about biology. Uh, but it does, put this, it, does, it does frame the story on Joseph in, in a way that I think is worth meditating on for a couple of moments. Um, because we can tell, even before Joseph receives this dream from God, that he's, he's a good guy. And I say that because of his response when he finds out that his fiancée is pregnant. The right thing for Joseph to do would have been for him to do a pretty public divorce of Mary because he has entered into this engagement in good faith. He has found out that his partner is pregnant. He knows he is not the dad. And to protect his own reputation, which in those days in that economy was also his livelihood, the right thing for him to do would have been to make it a big public divorce, to make it clear to everyone in their community that, that he had nothing to do with this, that he was a righteous guy, um, that he had followed God's law, and, and that this was all Mary's fault. That would have been the right thing to do. Okay? Uh, legally, no one would have faulted him for it. Uh, But Joseph doesn't do the right thing. He does the good thing, which is he decides in order to protect Mary to divorce her quietly. Now, again, I don't, y'all know how communities work, right? The smaller they are, the faster the gossip travels. This was not going to be an effective way for Joseph to protect his own reputation. By choosing to divorce Mary quietly, he was putting himself at no small amount of risk. And again, I can't overstate this enough, this translated very directly into financial repercussions for him. Right? His reputation would have depended on who was hiring him for his contractor services, because that's what he was. Bible says carpenter, but like Con- it, contractor is what he wasn't like building bookshelves, right? So um, then, though, then Joseph has this dream where God tells him the deal. And I was telling the worship team before uh, before we began this morning, I just I just marvel at the mixture of mo- emotions Joseph must have felt because how cool would it be to find out that this 
situation that was likely heartbreaking and stressful and all these kinds of things is actually this pivotal moment in human history where God is inviting him into the... And there's this, like, there's this little thing where even the fact that God told Joseph to name Jesus, that, that was the father's role. So this is God like literally inviting Joseph like sort of officially to be the stepdad, right? Um, like cool little side. But like Joseph is getting invited into this pivotal moment in human history where he gets to be the Messiah's stepdad, which how cool is, like, how cool is that? Amazing, especially if, as from all accounts we can tell, Joseph was a righteous, faithful guy. And he finds out that his God has chosen him for this role. Amazing. On the other hand, who is going to believe their story? Right? Like, no one. This is crazy. And so, by choosing to stay with Mary and by choosing to stay yes to God's invitation to be a, a, officially a part of the Holy Family, Joseph is exposing himself to the most risk and loss of all of his options. So like, yeah, it's super cool and also probably going to completely change the trajectory of his entire life. This will cost Joseph significantly. So I say all of that to say that the first Christmas was not merry and bright for Joseph and Mary. What Joseph had was his fiance, the baby, and the dream. The dream that God had promised that God is present in the midst of this heinous mess and that God has not abandoned Joseph and Mary, but in fact has become present to them in this impossible to believe way. So what about us? What about you? Where are you as we kind of round the corner and the final round, uh, final ramp up to Christmas. Right? Are you, are you just tired? Are you anxious? Are you worried? Are you afraid? Maybe you're joyful. That's great. You know. I just want again to remind you: there's no such thing as a perfect Christmas. There never has been. It didn't start that way. And that what's good news about Christmas is not, uh, I mean, we all like to make fun of Away in the Manger, right? Because it's like, and little Lord Jesus, no crying, he may, right? Okay. Uh, we know that that's not how babies are. Like, we, we, we sanitize and sentimentalize so much of that first Christmas, and yet the Bible gives it to us in this messy, awkward, uh, difficult space and says, the good news is not that Christmas is perfect. The good news is that when it's not perfect is exactly when God enters into the thing. And so I just want to encourage you that if your Christmas is not perfect, uh, first of all, you're in good company, and maybe instead of, instead of killing yourself trying to fix it, what if... What if we took a breath and we began looking in those spaces where there's anxiety, where there's fear, where there's pain? What if we began looking in those spaces for Jesus? Because that's where he enters in. And he says, I am Emmanuel, which means God is with you. So what if we could take seriously the idea that God is present with us in our anxiety, in our fear, in our 
uh, depression in, in those spaces of pain? How would it change the way we approach Christmas if we understood that what makes Christmas good is that's exactly where Jesus has chosen to meet us? I want you to bring that question with you as we approach the communion table today, because uh, this, is, this is yet another space where Jesus invites us uh, as we are. When you go back and look at the Last Supper story, you see that none of the disciples had a clue what was going on. Uh, they were all over the space, from planning actively to betray Jesus that night, to doubting who he was, to peppering him with questions about theology, all of it. And those are the people that Jesus chose to share this meal with. So again, if you come to this space and your life is uh, somewhere south of perfect, uh, then you're in good company. As we approach this table, as we receive these elements, we find Jesus to be present with us in a real and undeniable way. And that's why we do it together every week. And so before we, before we receive the communion meal together, I'm going to lead us in a prayer of examine. I'm going to ask you a set of questions, and I'm going to give you space to reflect on those. And uh, then we're going to pray together, and then we're going to receive communion together. So here's the first question I want you to consider. Where do you see God at work in this season? Do you think about the last several weeks leading up to Christmas? Where, where do you see God at work? Now, what is distracting you from God's work this season? Finally, as we approach Christmas, how can you be present to God's Spirit? And again, maybe that's specifically in those spaces of uh, pain or anxiety or fear. Let's pray together. God, you have gathered us this morning that we might be reminded that you have never been found 
in the palaces and in the squeaky clean places. But your people find you always, always, always in the wilderness, in the hidden places, in the places among the poor and the suffering, the anxious and the afraid. And uh, for thousands of years, we've called that good news. So we approach your communion table today and we bring with us all of those those feelings that make us feel ashamed or make us feel like our faith is too small. We bring them to you, we offer them to you in a spirit of honesty. And in return, we receive these elements. We pray as we receive them, they would become a spiritual food for us, that you might open our eyes, that we might see how your spirit is meeting with us, specifically in those places that we consider negative or low or whatever. That we might be refreshed and renewed, not because you take us out of those places, but because you are with us in those places. Thank you for the Christmas story. Thank you for the faithfulness of your servant, Joseph. We offer these prayers this morning. We approach your table in the name of your son, Jesus. The night Jesus was betrayed, this is the meal that he shared with his disciples. And it was at that meal that he broke bread and gave it to them. He said, this is my body broken for you. Take it and eat it. When the meal was over, he gave them a cup of wine. And he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take it and drink it. And so now we too eat and drink. And as we do, we remember Jesus' death until he returns. I want to say thank you to everyone who's continuing to give here at Catalyst. We really appreciate it. And I wanted to make sure to highlight again our Advent offering. Uh, we are collecting funds and supplies for Vita Victoriosa. Again, also, I'm just going to uh, remind you, the preschool is Viva. Okay, Our Chihuahua City friends are Vita Victoriosa. If you make a mistake... You definitely did it before me because I haven't mixed them up at all yet, ever, I swear. No. Um, so our friends in v, uh, Vita Victoriosa down in Chihuahua City, we're collecting uh, stuff for them. So I, I, I showed you some of the books that uh, Sarah already bought that are Spanish language books. They're everything from books like this for the little kids to chapter books. Uh, she just went to Half Price Books and found a good haul. So you can do that if you want. If you want to go out shopping and find some stuff, we can, we can uh, send those down uh, to Chihuahua City with Jessica or her family. Uh, you can also just give money, uh, again, especially for you virtual folks, if you don't want to ship stuff down here, we understand that, that's fine. Uh, so if you go to our Secure Giving app, you find a spot in there that's specifically for the Advent offering. And we are not only going to be purchasing books for the kids, uh, we're also going to be purchasing little dry erase tablets that they can use when they're uh, in, in class and learning and stuff like that. And then we're also going to be purchasing a few Spanish language Bibles for the women down there. Most of the women don't own a Bible, and many of them don't have any sort of background in the faith. And so we're getting the Spanish the Spanish version of the, the New Living Translation that we use here. It's the one that's uh, translated specifically to be really, really, really understandable and accessible, uh, e uh, even for folks who don't have any kind of Bible background. So that's what we use here when we teach and preach. It's what uh, Viva, or Vida, see? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's what Vita wants to use down there as well, so we're going to purchase a few of those. So anything that you can uh, contribute, we really appreciate it as an ongoing uh, partnership with them. Uh, but again, thank you to all of you who have already contributed to that anyway, and to all of you who continue to give to the regular offering as well. Also, of course, thank you to all of our volunteers, like Chanel leading worship today. Love it. Great. Yep. Fantastic. Um, all of our volunteers that continue to create this, create this space for us, and uh, those who have helped get uh, the, the space ready for Viva to move in, we're uh, thankful to you as well. Uh, now, as you're going... Uh, I know that this is the week leading up to Christmas, and it uh, probably is going to be a busy and chaotic week, but I want to challenge you to carve out some time every day, even if it's only five minutes, 
to sit in silence and to reflect on where you're seeing God in your day. So, you know, if you do it at the beginning of your day, you can, you know, pray that God will make you more aware of where God is present to you in your day. If you do it at the end of your day, you can kind of look back and, and ask, you know, meditate on where you've seen God. But just try to take five minutes of silence away, you know, leave your device, like they say at the Alamo Draft House, dark, silent, and out of sight. Like, get it? Um, you know, so you're not distracted by that. Uh, and just spend five minutes a day, or more if you want, but at least five minutes, just asking how God is present and see how that transforms your lead up into Christmas. Okay? I want to challenge you to do that and see, see how that transforms uh, by the time we get to next week. Remember, Saturday, six days from now, 6 p.m., live. So virtual in the building, either one. And then next Sunday morning, so a week from today, starting at 8 a.m. on the Catalyst YouTube page, uh, you can access that however, however you please. So uh, if you'd stand with me, I want to send you off with a blessing. Uh, Catalyst, as you go today, would you go knowing that Jesus is already ahead of you and is already present in all of those spaces where we often are afraid to acknowledge or even look for him? But he is Emmanuel, God with us, who has come into the middle of our mess to rescue us and to redeem us and to restore us.